Today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking into God's Word this morning, 2 Thessalonians. And if you follow along with me, I'm going to read verses 3 to verse 12, and that will be our topic for this morning. Um, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so. Because your faith is growing more and more, and the love every one of you has for each other is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to those who are troubled as to us as well. And this will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And they will be punished with the everlasting destruction and shout, shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. And on that day, he will come to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. With this in mind, we constantly pray for you that our God may count you worthy of his calling and by his power, he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray this so that the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our Lord Jesus, uh, grace of our God and Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, as Paul penned these words uh, to the Thessalonian church, I would imagine these church members were sitting and listening as they were encountering trials and difficulties in their lives. And they were asking the fundamental question that many of of us ask when life sometimes doesn't make sense is, where are you in the midst of that? And Father, we read in the scripture, Lord, that, that you are amongst us and in us and working through us even in the most difficult, trying times of our lives. So I pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom as we focus upon these words, that you would give us um, an understanding of how we should live our lives, that the trials are not by accident, but that they're designed to create in something in us and help us to know what that is this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today is Mother's Day. So for all of us, we wanna say happy Mother's Day. But if, I'm not sure if, if some of you know how Mother's Day actually began. Um, of course, we celebrate our mothers and our wives and, and those of us. Uh, it's one of the most, actually, it's an important day. Uh, and it's actually one of the most important days even in the church. Uh, I've heard that uh, next to Christmas and Easter, Mother's Day is one of the more attended services. Uh, and it's, it's, it's not by uh, accident that Mother's Day actually began in church. Uh, Anna Jarvis was speaking to her mother one day, and her mom remarked how nice it would be if someone created a memorial to mothers. After her mother's death, three years later in 1908, Anna Jarvis organized the very first Mother's Day service at her church, where the mother, her mother spent 20 years teaching the same Sunday school class. 
Interestingly, Anna Jarvis never married herself or was even a mother, but she appreciated what her mother had done. Isn't it interesting how uh, when you think about motherhood, it is one of the most complex, um, one of the busiest things that, that a person can do. Uh, and, and oftentimes, uh, the struggle of motherhood is, as Jamie was talking about, for some of us, it's like the balancing of all these things that are spinning. And sometimes motherhood in itself is one of the most difficult things. And in reality, uh, as in, even in our society, there are over 83 million mothers in the U.S. And single mothers have tripled in the last 30 years. So not only are women trying to balance motherhood with marriage, now they're balancing motherhood with being a single parent with children. And so as motherhood is, is getting busier and more difficult, you begin to ask the question, uh, what does a, a mother do? Well, if you think about it, the value of a mother is, is, is almost uh, sort of uh, undefinable. It, it's, it's really difficult to calculate. But salary.com every year has a survey that they come out. And they look at all the things that a mother does, uh, regardless of whether she's a stay-at-home mom or, or working outside the home. And this is the figure that they come, came out with this year. $162,581. So husbands, this is what you need to pay your wives. This is the, the, the sort of the price of motherhood. But there's a different type of price that, uh, that a mom pays. It's not just monetarily. It's all the energy, all the emotions, all the physical challenges of being a mother. And it's one of the toughest things that anyone can do. It's also, in some ways, a call to suffer. As uh, doc Dr. John Piper uh, preached on this topic many years ago, he entitled his sermon, To Be a Mother is to Suffer. And he wrote this. So the question, how do you handle setbacks, disappointments, abuses, the heartaches, the calamities, and the bitter province of your life? And I ask specifically this to mothers. Because to be a mother is a call to suffer. When Jesus looked for an analogy of suffering followed by joy, he said in John 16, 21, when a woman is in labor, she has pain because her hour has come. And when she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish but then celebrates the joy that comes after. To be a mother is a call to suffer. Not just the beginning of life, but also to the end. And then he says this, mothers suffer when their children are born. Mothers suffer when their children leave and go to the mission field. Mothers suffer when their children die. Mothers suffer when their children are foolish. To be a mother is a call to suffer. Yes, it is more, but it is not less. Isn't it interesting how uh, being a mother in some ways sort of uh, you experience this so, sort of this thing that we call suffering. And there is a correlation, isn't there, between the Christian life and motherhood. In some ways, all of us in this room as believers, we are also called to suffer. While suffering is not unique to motherhood, that motherhood has a unique, special suffering that it has because she is now giving her life for the sake of someone else. And as Christians, we always ask this question when we're going through hard times, is how do we deal with the setbacks, disappointments, the difficulty, the suffering of life? 
Well, this morning, Paul, in our text, is going to walk us through three important things to think about when difficulties come. But before we look at what Paul has to say, let me just give you a a background of where we are in our series. Uh, We began this year in 1 Thessalonians, and we call this the Church of the Future. And as we looked at this book that Paul wrote, he wrote this book in a unique context. See, Paul had been traveling and doing his first missionary journey, mostly in Asia, Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. And one day, the Spirit of God calls uh, Paul out of Asia into Europe. And for the first time, Paul crosses over into a place called Macedonia, which is modern-day Greece. And this begins the second missionary journey, where Paul is now going into Europe. And the first city, one of the first cities he lands in is Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica is a cosmopolitan city of two to 300,000 people. Uh, it is the capital of the northern area of Greece in Macedonia. And as Paul is preaching there, uh, a church is formed. The church is given birth. A church is planted. And this church is starting to grow and thrive. And something happens in the midst of that. Persecution arises. The Jews who are skeptical of Paul begin attacking this church. The Gentiles who are skeptical of this new sort of movement that is against Caesar, they are attacking the church. So the church is going through a lot of persecution. And so Paul leaves and goes to Corinth. And in Corinth, he writes this letter. The very first letter that Paul writes is the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so we said at the beginning of our series when we began this, that if you want to see what the future looks like, you got to go back to where the first book was written. And so 1 Thessalonians sort of deals with this whole topic of of this new church being formed. and, And Paul is now encouraging them, no matter how difficult your life is, that Christ is going to return. He's going to come back. That those who have died are going to be resurrected. And no matter how challenging life is, here's the good news, is that there's hope for eternity. So that was what the first book was about. Well, as Paul is now hearing from the church again, that apparently some people took Paul's writings and began to distort it. And they were questioning Paul, and they were misinterpreting Paul. And so these false prophets began to rise. And one of the things that they said to the church was this, that Jesus has already come. In other words, you guys don't have to work. You don't have to do anything. You just have to sit because Jesus has already come. And and as a result, a lot of the people were confused. And so Paul writes the second letter in response to some of the teachings that were being taught by these false teachers. And so this book really deals with this broader theme that, that yes, Jesus is com- coming back, but it doesn't call us to be lazy. It calls us to continually persevere. It's, it's a great book. It's a very short book, only three chapters. And so in chapter one, he continues with the theme of persecution. And the question that the church was, was asking is a question that many of us ask is, why doesn't life get to be easy? You know, there's always uh, sort of an assumption that many of us have is that once we become a Christian, that somehow all our problems will disappear. That for some of us, and I kind of grew up with this too, that, that if, I be, if I follow Jesus, that life would be a lot easier. But the call to discipleship is sometimes the opposite. That it doesn't get easier, sometimes it gets harder. What God promises us is not that he will erase all the difficulty. What God promises us is that he will guide us in all difficulty. In other words, that we won't do this alone. 
So in chapter one, the, the, the issue of persecution is continually arising, and the Christians are beginning to ask, it's getting even harder. How's God working in this situation? And so Paul gives three important things to think about. That when we suffer, when we go through difficulties, God has given us a way or the means by which we have to think about trials. And so three things I'm going to share with you, I think, are the things that has helped me to think through and sort of helped me to ask the questions. When you're suffering, this is why God allows the suffering to take place. And this is how we can endure through the suffering. So let me give you point number one in this passage. When life gets difficult, we are called to be patient. When, God, when life gets there, we are called to patience. Notice what he says in verse uh, 3 and 4. Uh, as he's writing this letter, he's recognizing one of their key attributes. He says in verse 3, We ought to always thank God for you, brothers, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more. Love for every one of you, uh, of, uh, each one of you has, for each other, is increasing. One of the unique marks about this church, even though they were going through hard times, is how they loved each other, how they supported each other, how they would uh, continually uh, walk with each other, in, even in the most difficult times. And their love for each other was growing more and more. Uh, what a great testimony for the church. That if you're marked by anything as a church, you should be marked. Not how much Bible do you know or how many mission trips have you taken. All those are secondary things. There's good things. But the primary thing that Paul focuses on is their relationship to each other. That they loved each other. But the thing that he then continues on in verse 4 is this. That the thing that he really highlights and he celebrates and what he boasts about is their response to trials. In verse 4, therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance, your patience, and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. The first thing that, that Paul mentions is that the thing that he highlights in this early church was that when suffering came, they were patient, they were enduring, they were persevering. The word for perseverance uh, is the Greek word in which it, it describes this idea of patiently enduring. And I think about this in the Christian life. That the thing that God calls, calls us to, to do is to be patient when difficulties come. Now, what's human response to anything that comes our way? Especially in our generation, the, the immediate response is we react or we become impatient. If I were to take a survey, how many of you are impatient? I think a lot of our hands would go up, especially if you go to the DMV and you're sitting there for five hours before they call your name and you just have to sit there. And I remember going there a few months ago when my daughter was getting her license and we went there, we waited three hours and then we went to the counter and the lady said, I'm sorry, you're missing one paperwork. But we're at the DMV, can I get that paperwork? It was a little registration slip. And she said, uh, no, you can't. You have to go to the other counter, get your slip, and then come back three weeks later. So it drives you mad when that's the way in which our bureaucracy works. And there's a part of us that gets so impatient when things like that happen, when somebody cuts us off, when somebody says something to us. Our immediate response is to get back at them. It's to say something. If they say something bad to us, we say something worse to them. 
But there's something about the Christian life that God calls us to, that develops holiness, that develops a spiritual maturity more than anything else. And that word is patience. If you notice, there are different lists in the Bible. You have the fruit of the Spirit. You have the the characteristic of love in 1 Corinthians 13. In each of those lists, one of the first things that Paul mentions is this. Love is patience. And I think that patience in itself is the thing that marks our spiritual maturity. The more spiritually mature we are, the more patient we should become. And and our suffering then is what God uses to create in that the very characteristic, that defining characteristic of spiritual maturity. In James chapter 5, verse 7, James, the writer of the book, says this, Be patient, therefore, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. Suffering is one of the ways in which God develops in us the spiritual character of spiritual maturity of patience. And because that is a spiritual quality, the only way some of us can sort of develop that is through the hard and difficult things of our lives. But again, our our biggest challenge in our generation is that we want everything now. We want everything instantaneously. Uh, Someone described this generation as the I want it now generation. Instant gratification. Uh, Bucknell University published a study entitled Instant Gratification and Its Dark Side. And they begin by telling a story of Heather. Heather is 15 years old and she can't resist checking her smartphone when it buzzes or rings. Sometimes she even imagines feeling the vibration in her pocket even though the phone is tucked away uh, in her bag. And she says this, it's crack, it's addiction. I feel that maybe I'm going to miss out on something if I don't check my text messages and email. She needs to be connected to the bigger world around her. And so she needs this instant, constant feedback. And here's the danger when we think about sort of this instant technology that we have, is that oftentimes we equate that technology with our spirituality. Many years ago when I was doing my doctoral work, uh, one of the classes I had the privilege of taking was a professor at USC, a philosophy professor named Dallas Willard. And the title of the class was Christian Spirituality. And as we were in that class, one of the interesting things we surveyed was kind of the historical development. How does God develop people throughout the ages? And one of the qualities that God uses is this quality of patience. And I thought about this. And, and, and so I wrote my paper uh, for that class on technology and its effect on Christian spirituality. And one of the things, and this was, this was 15 years ago when I wrote this, <clears throat> before the advent of all the things that we have now, one of the dangers is, this, is that we sort of view God the way we view our texting friends. That some of us, we send a text, and if that person doesn't immediately respond, something is wrong in that relationship. And that's the way we sort of equate with God. That, that as we pray, that we expect God to answer that prayer almost instantaneously. 
But one of the things that you see throughout the Bible is this. Oftentimes, God is quiet. God is silent for days, months, years, hundreds of years. The gap between the Old Testament and New Testament is, is hundreds and hundreds of years. And oftentimes God does that because he wants to develop in, in us the spirit of waiting. As one person said, is that in Psalm 27 verse 17, it reminds us to be strong, to be brave and courageous. Wait patiently for the Lord. That patience and waiting are intrinsically tied together. That as we wait, we are trusting in God's provision, but we are also trusting in God's timing. But there's another thing that's kind of connected. Waiting and hoping are also wound together. As one person said, waiting and hoping are wound together like strands of rope. When you wait for inheritance you have been promised, you expect and hope the laws of the land will make it available to you. When you wait for the news on TV, you are trusting and expecting your TV to work and the station will air the broadcast. When you wait to hear whether or not you have been accepted a job you apply for, you are not only hoping to get a job, but you're hoping that your credentials and qualifications are more than sufficient. In other words, waiting produces a greater hope. And that's what Paul is saying here, that as they were suffering, that God is, is going to come. But in the midst of that, in that season of difficulty and challenge, God is stretching you and God is molding you and God is developing you into the person you want you to be. That's why great men and women of God oftentimes have to go through this long period of waiting. And I want to encourage you not to give up because the worst thing that we can do is when life gets hard and we just throw in the towel. Say, so I don't want to follow Jesus anymore because it's, it's hard. Because it's in the midst of that waiting that God begins to reveal himself to us. I think about all the stories in the New Testament or all the stories in the Bible of people that waited for years for that promise. Think about even uh, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. And her husband, as they had been praying every single year for a child, it wasn't until their late years that they were able to conceive. Think about Abraham and Sarah, same story. Remember, God's timing and your timing are oftentimes very different. But that waiting allows you to depend upon the timing of God. But the second thing he says here is this. When your life gets difficult, you have to have a new perspective. You have to have a kingdom perspective. In other words, instead of seeing the situation through the lens of your own personal experience, you have to see that experience through the lens of God's kingdom. And so he says in verse 5, all this is evidence that God's judgment is right. And as a result, that you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give re relief to those who are troubled as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in a blazing fire with his powerful angels. What Paul is saying is this, as, as these Christians were suffering, he says you have to understand your suffering in the context of God's kingdom. And he says this, or, 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 the way he looks at it is this, that there are actually two things. 
uh, about kingdom perspective. One is this, that our difficulties are designed by God to develop in us righteousness, to purify us, to clean us, to refine us. And so he says here in verse 5, all this is evidence of God's justice and that your suffering will prove you worthy of the kingdom of God. In other words, when you suffer, when you go through difficult times, it validates, it credentials you that your faith has been now refined and it is true. The testing of our faith develops the very characteristic we need to shine before God. And so that's one thing. But the second thing he says, he, he says is, is, is interesting. That our difficulty will also, when we, when we go through uh, uh, suffering, that we also come to understand that difficulty will come or judgment will come upon the unrighteous. Have you ever suffered and, and, and you've been, maybe you were the recipient of something that was very unjust? Maybe somebody fired you because you were a believer uh, or maybe somebody laid you off, or maybe somebody said something to you because you're a Christian. Whatever your suffering may be, in other places in the world, our suffering could be far more intense. But one of the things about suffering is that sometimes when we see unjust suffering, we begin to ask the question, is God really there? Well, Paul says is something interesting here. He says this in verse 6, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. In other words, what gives us kingdom perspective is not only does our suffering produce in us righteousness, but it also helps us to see that God is the ultimate judge and he will produce justice. And so justice is not in our hands. Justice is in the hands of God. And I think when you have that kingdom perspective, it gives you a sense of hope. For the future. And so, as Christians, how do we then have this kingdom perspective? Well, one of my favorite verses in the Bible is Matthew 6.33. If I were to summarize what the Christian life uh, really is in terms of kingdom perspective, it's this. Matthew 6.33 says, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and everything else will be added to you. If you want to know what the secret of the Christian life is, simply is this. Seek God's kingdom first. Make God's kingdom your priority. And if you make God's kingdom your priority, then everything else will be added unto you. So kingdom perspective in marriage, kingdom perspective in raising your children, kingdom perspective in how you manage your employees or how you work under a boss, all these things help you understand God's rule and reign in your life. That's what the kingdom of God is about. And so when you have that perspective, then no matter what happens in our life, our present difficulty or suffering falls under God's greater economy. Another thing that I'm always thankful for is this, that when life, when, when you focus on a problem, the problem will always become bigger because that problem then becomes our total focus. And so as Christians, what God calls us to do is to shift our eyes from the problem itself to God and his kingdom and his righteousness. And the more you focus upon the kingdom of God, the smaller our problems become. So here's the question for the kingdom or kingdom perspective is through whose eyes and whose lens are you looking at life? Are you looking at through the eyes of God's kingdom or are you looking at it through your own eyes? And I think for most of us, and, and I'm at fault here as well, 
is that our tendency is look through our lens and then say, God, help me to see. Versus saying, God, how do you see this? Because here's, here's the promise of Scripture. All things work together for good for those who are called and called according to his purpose. In other words, God brings all things into his justice. So whose hand are you in? Are you in your hand? Are you in God's hand? There's a poem that goes something like this. It compares uh, uh, whose hand you're in. It says, a basketball in my hand is worth $19. A basketball in Michael Jordan's hand is worth $33 million. It all depends upon whose hand it's in. A baseball in my hand is worth $6 million. Uh, a baseball in, in um, uh, Alex Rodriguez's hand is worth $25 million. A tennis racket is useless in my hands. A tennis racket in Sampras's hand is a Wimbledon championship. A rod in my hand will keep away wild animals, but a rod in Moses' hand will part the Red Sea. It really depends, isn't it, on what your perspective is. And so many of us, we see the same thing differently. We see a half a, a half a glass of water, we see it either half full or we see it half empty. The reality is the same quantity. It's how we perceive it. And so Paul tells the church, look at the perspective of the kingdom of God. That when you suffer, that the suffering is for a short period, but it helps you understand that God's purpose is at work, a greater work. But there's a third thing he invites us to do. When life gets difficult, we are invited to pray. Look at the last two verses, verse 11 and 12. It says, with this in mind, we constantly pray for you, that our God may count you worthy of his calling, and by his power he may fulfill every good purpose of yours and every act prompted by your faith. We pray so that the name of Jesus, the Lord Jesus, may be glorified in you and you in him, according to the grace of our God and our Lord Jesus Christ. The last thing he invites the church to do is to pray. And I think that's the greatest thing we can do. Because in, in many ways for us as Christians, our last resort is prayer. We say, okay, I, I tried everything I can, so I, I just need to pray. What Paul is saying is, is no, he's, he's inviting us to pray. And here's the thing about prayer, and, and what Paul is saying is this, that when you're going through difficult, hard, challenging times, to understand that there's a purpose behind what you're going through. And so Paul is saying this, I constantly pray for you so that you may understand that what you are encountering is something that God is going to use for your greater good, either for your holiness or for the greater good of the kingdom of God. Now, prayer doesn't mean that God's going to answer everything we want him to do. God is not a vending machine. Oftentimes, God's answer to prayer is, is silence. And that's okay because in that period of waiting, he is helping us understand a greater purpose. As somebody once said, when you pray, there's often three responses, right? Yes, no, and wait. And oftentimes God's response is wait. But in that period of waiting, God's going to reveal to you. And so Paul says this, when you are going through difficulties, that the greatest resource that we have as part of this community, as this church, is that we have the opportunity to pray for each other. You know, one of the, the great things about being a church is that the Christian life was never meant to be a, 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 a solo run. It was never meant to be an individual marathon or a hike. It was always meant to be a group effort, that community effort. And the greatest resource that we have as the kingdom 
is one another. I shared this before many times, but one of the things that, that we as pastors and elders have the privilege of doing is to pray with you and for you. Uh, one of the things that we do uh, both here at this campus and the Anaheim campus is when somebody has an urgent need, a difficulty in their life, a loss of a job, uh, a cancer, whatever it is, they call the church. And one of the things that I love our ch- pastors and our elders to do is we lay hands on them, we anoint them with oil, we pray together. In the last six months that we've been doing this, we have seen God answer so many miraculous prayers. And we see the evidence of God at work. And one of the things that Paul is telling us is this, that when it's hard, that's when you need each other. That's when prayer becomes more effective because we understand that we need to be more dependent on who God is. So some of you are, are going through some challenges right now in your life. It may be challenges that you, that, that you haven't shared with anybody. This past week, we had a guy call us and he was just going through some rough, rough things in his life. He was just kicked out and he just didn't know what to do. And I said, you need to come to church. You need to hang out with us. And so Pastor Ethan and I, and I met with him and as we began to, I prayed with him over the phone. And one of the things that, that I really think is an important ingredient in prayer is this, is that when you think you can handle it, you don't need God. But when you are absolutely at a point where you just can't do it, and he was at that point where he was at rock bottom, that's when his prayers became real. Because he recognized that apart from God, he can do nothing. So here's the lesson for us as we close our time. Is that during these tough times, God becomes more evident, doesn't he? Because he helps us to see that when our suffering happens, that there are things that, that, that we need to develop, our patience that need to be developed, a perspective that needs to be enlarged, and lastly, prayer that we need to depend on. And sometimes these trials heighten our awareness of God. What difficulties ultimately point you back to a greater reality than yourself? Going back to motherhood, Sometimes motherhood in itself is a call not only to suffer, but to see that your life has a greater reality than what you've been given. Uh, Justin, uh, briefly, in his book, Unbelievable, shares a story about a woman named Jennifer Fallweiler, who grew up in a very loving family, but one in which religion was painted as false. Uh, Jennifer says that she never uh, never remembers a time when she believed God as a child. She was raised on this diet of science and reason, evidence-based rational thought. Her bedtime reading, by the way, was Carl Sagan's Cosmos. From an early age, she knew that the world ran in this established natural order, natural law. And science was the way of understanding everything. She was a happy atheist as an adult until her early days of marriage and something dramatic happened. And that dramatic event was the birth of her first child and she said she experienced something dramatic she says I looked down and thought what is this baby and I thought from a purely atheistic materialistic perspective this baby is a randomly evolved collection of chemical reactions and I realized if that's true then all the love I feel for this child is nothing more than a chemical reaction in my brain and I looked down at this baby and I thought that's not true it can't be true 
And that moment was a turning point for this young mother, who, which eventually led her to become a believer, a Christian. Something had clicked for her, that what didn't make sense allowed her to draw closer to God. And that's the same point that we want to talk about, is sometimes what doesn't make sense allows us to see a greater reality than ourselves. There are no accidents with God. That everything that has happened has been purposely given to us as a way for God himself to be glorified in us.